This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. Like Trisha said, I don't think we deal with the past or history in very healthy ways at mm. all. Um, there's a wonderful documentary called Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore that looks at mm. the Holocaust and the way that Germany handled that history. And it's very different from the way that we have handled yeah. our history here. Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Our central question today, why is it important to interrogate our notions of a traditional canon and create a more inclusive curriculum, especially ELA? We are super excited to have here um, two of the four folks who run the Disrupt Techs movement organization. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about if it's a movement or an organization or what exactly it is. I'm sorry. Did you say the, the people? I think you meant the goats. Greatest of all oh, time. Oh, I mean, yes, yeah. but yes. Like, they're amazing. So don't be shy. These are some incredible folks. So we're really excited to talk to them today. We are. Do you want to do, you want to do it? Hi there. As we're talking about them while they're on the air. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah thanks for having us. Uh, our first guest today is Julia Torres. Um, she has taught language arts for 13 years. Currently, she is a teacher librarian for the Montbello campus, serving five schools within the far northeast region of Denver Public Schools. Formerly a teacher of AP English Language and Literature, Julia has served Colorado language arts teachers as the vice president and president of the regional NCTE affiliate, the Colorado Language Arts Society. Currently, Julia is serving teachers as a 2018 to 2020 Heinemann Fellow. Julia is also the current NCTE secondary representative at large. In cooperation with the Educator Collaborative, Julia facilitates workshops and professional conversations about anti-bias, anti-racist education, social justice, and culturally sustaining pedagogies. We also have with us Trisha Ibarvia, who is currently an English teacher at Conestoga High School, PA, where she taught world literature, American Lit, AP Lang, AP Lit, AP Capstone. She is also the co-director for PA Writing and Literature Project. Trisha has taught courses in digital writing. Uh, teacher Inquiry facilitates the Project Anti-Bias Study Group. I mean, she's also 2016-2018 Heinemann Fellow, Literacy Consultant, Fellow for the Educator Collaborative. Uh, she also writes regularly for Moving Writers and Write, Share, Connect, and has been published in Education week literacy today and english journal like we said at the beginning of the show these women are amazing and we're super excited to have them here with us yeah welcome thank you so much thanks for um i don't know if i told everybody but i i am a librarian right now so that's a piece that sometimes gets left out of the bio that is um it's in some bios and it's not in some other ones so i just want to make sure folks know that right now i'm serving as a librarian that's awesome. Is there anything else that either of you want to throw out there? I mean, we just pulled that straight off of Disrupt Tech's website. Um, is there anything else that people should know in terms of who you are, or your context that shapes the conversation um, and the work that you do? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> we covered everything. <laughs> So I, I'm really curious. I mean, I dug into like the links on the website, but can either of you talk a little bit about the Heinemann Fellow? And you both have um, been part of that fellowship. That sounds for rad. A couple what of is years. that? 
Um, sure. I'll um, tell you a little bit about it. It's a two-year action research program um, that Heinemann Publishing Company, which is a publishing company for teachers, um, put together in 2014. That was the first year. Um, and their goal was to bring together, um, you know, about 10 to 12 teachers from across the country in various contexts and bring them together to do um, action research and examine problems of practice and meet over a two-year period to form a cohort of educators who would be a support system for each other, um, kind of work with some intentionality around issues that are affecting their particular context. Um, yeah, so that's that's the uh, work of the Heinemann Fellows. We're in the, um, Julie is in the third cohort, so there have been three groups so far. That's awesome. That's really awesome. What Trisha said. Yeah. (laughs) Is there something that that fellowship allows you to have access to or to do that's uh, maybe different than if you weren't part of the fellowship? It's a good opportunity to amplify folks who we work with. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon for us to, um, you know, seek out coworkers. I have a podcast actually coming out today um, with one of my fellow librarians. Her name's Janet Damon, and she's a librarian, black librarian in Denver Public Schools. So a lot of us are really grateful for the opportunity to amplify the voices of folks we work with who, mm-hmm. um, you know, for whatever reason, may not seek out or be sought out um, it, for whatever reason. So it allows us to kind of bring in the homies, so to speak, into, um, into a larger arena so that folks get to hear from them. Nice. So we want to kind of dig into this idea of Disrupt Techs and how Disrupt Techs got started. I think some of our listeners are aware in the sense that, like, we've tagged you on Twitter and we're kind of um, talking a little bit about it. And they probably Mm -hmm. have seen the hashtag um, that connects a lot of your posts. Can you talk a little bit about what Disrupt Techs is and how it got started? Sure. I think um, it started in um, 2018. And um, I think it was really a... um, you asked earlier if it was like a movement or organization. We've been calling it a movement, which I think it is. I would, I think it's also a collective um, of teachers who are interested in doing anti-bias, anti-racist, anti-colonial work in their classrooms. And it really came out of a need. I mean, there was really just um, some good conversation that was happening on Twitter and other social media about um, given the state of our country, um, well, given the state of our current, our current state of our country, but knowing also what our country has always been, I think teachers are in a unique position to be able to um, impact um, the next generation of leaders. Mm -hmm. And so there's a disconnect between what's happening in society and what we think is happening in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us just wanted to get together and sort of think about how we can use our curriculum to help kids become more critical thinkers how to have them analyze, how to have them question, and how to um, use curriculum that we don't always have choice about, Mm. how we can use that curriculum to um, help students, um, again, develop those critical literacy skills that Mm. uh, will make them smart consumers and responsible citizens. And so Mm. kind of put a call out on Twitter about who was interested in doing that kind of work and Um, Within 24 hours, our group of four um, came together and and we'd known each other Mm -hmm. on the Twitterverse um, for a little bit. And um, it was just a natural, organic um, 
yeah, coming together. And um, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where we came in. I know Julie wants to add some things there. I'll just say that I'm really proud to be a part of the collective because Trisha was doing her work in her context. Kim was doing her work in her context. Lorena was doing her work in her context. I was doing my work in my context. And in that way, teaching can feel so isolating. Mm. But then when we mm. came together and we started talking about what we were doing and we had already been aware of each other's work and kind of leaned on each other for resources and support and help mm. from time to time, because it feels good to know that somebody you're not alone and that somebody is struggling with the same things that you are and that somebody sees the situation the way that you do. But then also, as we started to progress along further, we realized that we had some similarities in how we experienced the school system. Hmm. So um, trying to make things better for our students and for our own children, we're all mothers. Um, that's something that we share. And hmm. we each contribute different things to the collective. But then we have this sort of really beautiful connection to a larger network of folks who are doing the work all throughout the world and throughout the country. Mm. And I'm just really excited and happy to be able to be a part of it and to be able to learn from folks and to be, I'm very honored to be able to, to lead, but then also just to be able to, you know, be a part of the collective means a lot to me because it strengthens me a lot and gives me a lot of, you know, gas, so to speak, to be able to mm. keep going. Um, we pulled some, a quote from your website, which is just, I think, really descriptive of the kind of work you're doing. And we wanted to ask you some questions about, it says, Disrupt Texts is a crowdsourced grassroots effort by teachers, for teachers, to challenge the traditional canon in order to create a more inclusive, representative, and equitable language arts curriculum that our students deserve. It is part of our mission to aid and develop teachers committed to anti-racist, anti-biased teaching pedagogy and practices. Where did you see, when I look at that, it's just, it's an incredible mission. Where did you see, where did you see, um, do you see other organizations making, try like making that effort and not really getting there? Do you see like where, why, where did that, that need arise um, for you? Like you're saying that you saw it in your own classrooms or that you experienced it in your own education. Were there other, are there other kind of gaps and resources that you saw a need for disrupt texts? You know, a lot of folks were doing this work um, before us and, and, you know, I think that I can't speak for everybody, but I can say that when it comes down to being a teacher of color mm -hmm. in a lot of school environments, we are the only one. And so we often have a unique view about the curriculum and about mm -hmm. texts that should be part of the curriculum or how these texts could or should be taught. And when you are a person of color or a person from a group that has been historically marginalized or disenfranchised, and you're in a school system that is sort of, you know, promoting primarily the classics or white literature as the default and everyone else gets relegated to a, um, you know, a multicultural lit class mm -hmm. or something like that. It's only so long before you start to feel like that in itself, that act of pushing off texts that might be a part of your particular cultural canon to the sidelines. It's mm -hmm. only a matter of time before you wake up to the fact that that is a part of the status quo that continues to mm -hmm. um, lift up other, some and oppress others. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'll let Trisha say more, but um, I think that 
you know, it was not very natural for us to fall into this. And then other folks, I think, were inspired by it and started to see this as work that they could and should do as well. Mm. So I can't speak to other organizations that are or aren't doing this work, but I can say individuals yeah. sort of have started to, um, in a lot of places, in my view, pick up steam. Okay. Mm. So it's inspired the work of others. Trisha, were you going to add more to that? I just want to um, reiterate what Julia said, which is that I do think, I do believe that our role as women of color and educators of color is important here um, mm -hmm. in a profession that is 83 or something percent white women in the United States, and that we bring a um, lens that I think that needs to continue to be heard and amplified. And that is not to say that we are the voice of um, educators of color in any sort of way that... But that I think too often in professional development, um, educators of color are often, um, professional development is often done to educators of color mm -hmm. uh, rather than having that professional development, especially when it comes to anti-bias, anti-racist, culturally relevant and responsive mm -hmm. pedagogy. I mean, that's the work that educators of color should be leading, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that in terms of what makes Disrupt Text different, perhaps than larger um, education and PD industry, because it has become an industry, is that we are teachers, we're in schools, we're working with young people um, every day, we're working with teachers every day. I mm. think that we have a, um, a, we have a view from the ground that I think um, is an important one mm -hmm. um, when we're thinking about how we move forward. Yeah, I'm always surprised at how many people write about education who aren't in the classroom. So I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> when you think about the reception and um, you said there's a lot of people that have been influenced um, are being motivated by the work. Is there anything that surprised you like a year ago you didn't think would happen or be a result of this or um, you just finding like a, a pleasant surprise? We'll talk about unpleasant surprises, but pleasant surprises first. I'll say that when we went to NCTE and we looked out at that ballroom, I think all of us were just like, wow. I mean, the the energy in that room and the curiosity, the conversations, mm. um, the authors that showed up to support, it was powerful. And I just, I have never been a part of something like that. And it was, it, it's, I almost am at a loss for words, which is ridiculous as a librarian and English <laughs> teacher, but I am at a loss for words right now because being in that room, looking out over, Trisha took an amazing picture of it, but mm. just seeing the collective gathered there, excited, hungry for the work, full mm -hmm. of questions, and to be honored to be a part of this group of four women who's leading it, it was just, it was magical. It was great. Oh, I would definitely um, say the same thing, that it was an incredible experience seeing so many people who came out to see us and who... Um, who were just hungry, I think. I think that speaks to the hunger that people have mm -hmm. for this discussion. I think there are a lot of teachers who want to do this work but don't mm -hmm. know where to start. Yeah. Um, and I think even though I knew that or suspected that in my head, the response has been more than I anticipated. Um, so it's been very affirming. I was gonna say, when I saw that you um, were presenting at that conference, 
I uh, was like, oh my gosh. And then one of my colleagues was there from our school here in Abu Dhabi. And I was just messaging her. I'm like, you need to find a way to get into that workshop. And she's like, I'm gonna look at my schedule. I'm like, no, I'm no, serious. Go. Like, scratch your schedule, it's go so to that workshop. And then she ended up and she walked out like, wow, those ladies are amazing. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why I told you to go yeah, to that workshop. That's cool. excellent. Um, when you think about, so those are some of the ways that the movement is um, working in a really positive way, and it's really setting this context that we need this work. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you feel like you've taken a stand um, in terms of like controversial texts or canon, and what kind of pushback have you received? Um, in other words, what is maybe is the most uh, controversial stance that disrupt texts have? And I kind of laugh in qu- uh, air quote dis- um, controversial because I mean it's all relative. Trisha, you want to take that one? Uh, sure. I mean, I think, and Julia, tell me if I'm um, wrong, but I think our stance on To Kill a Mockingbird mm. is probably the most, um, yep. That's probably the, the most heated response. Um, yeah. yeah, that one is, that's a tough one. That is a really tough one for teachers to um, face in terms of the potential damage that that kind of text does to students of color, but also to white students, especially in the hands of a racially unconscious teacher. And I think because so many teachers love that book themselves, and again, white teachers love that book themselves because that's what they grew up with. And it does give this hopeful message to, um, I guess, to white readers uh, about the small differences they can make if they could just be like Atticus. Um, it's just, it's comforting in a way that's damaging. And so yeah. I think it's really, really hard for teachers to come to grips mm. with that. So that I would say is the one, and it's gotten to the point where sometimes I'm just, I don't even want to engage in the conversation with mm-hmm. teachers about that. Um, or like I'll refer them to our websites or here's an article. Um, because the truth is, is that it's well-documented. Like even mm-hmm. though we, I mean, we're not the first to point out the problems, Right. And we certainly mm-hmm. won't be the last. Mm-hmm. Um, but it probably so makes I you weary to have hard. the same conversation over and over again about that same text. Right. It just kind of makes you tired. We've kind of moved into a, a phase where we just say, so rather than putting us on defense, why don't you explain why this is something mm-hmm. that you a hill that you're willing yeah. to die on? Well, and that puts kind of the, the onus and the. Um, the kind of um, responsibility onto that person too to think about like why are you defending it so strongly like what's where does that come from you can examine that in your own self I think that's work everybody should do teacher or no especially given yeah. that controversial in my opinion PBS great American read um, that I found so offensive mm-hmm. on so many levels um, and and you know when we have these chats when we do the Twitter chats and when we do the slow chat and people respond, it really turns into a classroom and a think tank where people, mm-hmm. a lot of people do lurking and watching and don't necessarily participate, but they still receive the learning. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do believe that it has far reaching impact because folks are able to go back and read through and sort of, um, you know, carry the conversation beyond just the chat or the time that it exists on Twitter or, right. you know, in social media space, which we know is, um, is somewhat temporary, but we've pre- preserved essays on our website that have kind of captured, we have also Twitter moments that capture mm. 
some of the highlights from the chat. So I would encourage folks to go and look at the To Kill a Mockingbird responses. Look, look at the comments. People say, don't ever read the comments, but read the comments. <laughs> and <coughs> take a look at what folks say. And I think that in and of itself is a real learning experience. And I think we still have a lot of work to do in the field of education when it comes down to those who prefer to pass on dogma or or who want to just really hold on to the classics because mm-hmm. it's what we've known and what we've taught and what we feel we have a responsibility to pass on to future mm-hmm. generations versus making space for some phenomenal writing and phenomenal works that are coming mm-hmm. out of publishing for young people these days. Um, and it doesn't have to be either or. That's something that we often get pigeonholed into, that mm. folks like to say that we are anti the classics. And and not, I mean, forcing us into that paradigm is really problematic. And that's something that we come up against a lot. So it's not that all of us hate all of the classics. And I want to make, mm. I want to be very clear about that. It's not that way at all. Yeah. Um, but I think also we've got a lot of work to do as educators when it comes down to what we consider worthy of academic study and what we don't and why mm-hmm. really unpacking that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to um, ask you a little bit. I think you saw on Twitter the conversation around Shakespeare and um, there's a pretty strong stance that Disrupt takes in terms of not teaching Shakespeare. And so I was curious, um, is, is that the second runner up like next to, to Kill a Mockingbird? Is it Shakespeare uh- that people get mad about? I would say The Great Gatsby was right up there and Shakespeare. Yeah. What do you think, Trisha? Uh, Gatsby. Yeah, I would say I would say Shakespeare and Gatsby for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those are probably the top three. Yeah. Yeah. So one question like Annie and I were kind of wrestling with and you saw um, a few people on Twitter talking about it. But just the notion of like, what if can people teach these texts in a more um, anti-colonial, anti racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera, mm. way, or is it really like we just need to, is it more, be- is it more beneficial to try to find alternatives? Um, like what's, is there, or is it not a one size fits all for, you know, for different types of text? Cause I think about Shakespeare, for example, is that something that you wholesale, like throw out and you'd look for something else to teach? I don't know, you know, that, that time period or that, um, or poetry in in the in drama, like what you know, or do you read it and then have students critically analyze it, or does it depend on the on the text? Well, some people don't have a choice, you yeah. know. When the curriculum says you're teaching Shakespeare, and your department chair mm-hmm. says you're teaching Shakespeare, and yeah. your evaluations require that you've taught Shakespeare, you're teaching Shakespeare. Yeah. And you know, I taught Shakespeare in a class full of I would say 98% bilingual students. Mm. And who had no idea, they'd never read any Shakespeare before. Yeah. And they came in and we read Othello. That's very different from some folks who start getting exposed to Shakespeare earlier yeah. and they're monolingual, meaning they only speak English. So there's so many different contexts. So it's dangerous mm-hmm. to say that one right. size fits all. Um, but also, you know, when I taught Othello, the way that I did it was very much through all of the things that we talk about, anti-bias, anti-racist, decolonization lens, you know, and talking a little bit about how Shakespeare has been used to oppress second language learners primarily, I think, Mm -hmm. as well as folks who grow up in environments where other forms of English are the dominant form that they're exposed to. Um, So, you know, I, 
I love the conversations that folks are having now about cultural capital. Sometimes yeah. they they frustrate me because mm. there are lots of different cultural capitals that other people don't think, or I'll just be specific, white people don't feel that they yeah. need to know about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Shakespeare is one example of a cultural capital that folks assume you need to know. I never mm. read The Scarlet Letter. I'm very sorry, 11th grade teacher, whoever you were. Um, I don't remember you, I but you. I know that The Scarlet Letter was assigned and yeah. I didn't read it. So yeah. here's the honest. If you're out there, there's the truth. And I feel like I've been able to succeed in life just fine yeah, without that. Absolutely. Daniel Hawthorne is not a part of my cultural capital that I need to be a successful human being in life. Right. Um, but, you know, there are folks who would say that I'm arrogant for saying that. So I want to throw the ball to Trisha um, and see what she has to say, mm. because she teaches in a very different context. Mm. I think it's worth yeah. considering the differences. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think that for teachers, you like Julia said, sometimes you don't have a choice. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there is some value in looking at a text and it depends on the text. There are some texts where I would just say, no, I would not. That's a text I would never teach. Yeah. Um, but you don't always have a choice. And I do think there's some value in helping students unpack what a dominant narrative looks like and to be able to mm. look at a dominant narrative and see the ways in which there are gaps and to be able to ask questions about who's missing, who's not there, what voice and perspective is being centered. So because kids are going to be exposed to dominant narratives everywhere in their mm -hmm. life by just existing in a racist society. So they have yeah. to be able to have the tools to recognize it when they see it and then to ask questions about it. Um, at the same time, that can't be then the reason why we must only teach those dominant narratives, like that kids only right. have to learn how to unpack them. We have to think about how can we bring the voices that have been traditionally marginalized into the center and then to think about the positionality of texts that we have in our classrooms. For example, um, it may be that you have central text and then all the authors of color are like your book club choices or in your classroom library. But it's just that another way of almost um, continuing to marginalize them, right? Because kids know what you value based on how much time you spend on something and where it is in the curriculum. So I think it's important to consider those questions. And that said, sometimes that's the first step for some teachers in terms of moving books from um, that they might not be sure about into like the center, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone's going to be in a different place. Um, I really appreciate um, James Banks' model of multicultural education mm -hmm. um, um, because he takes into account the steps that sometimes have to happen in systems about how multiple voices can become embedded and how we can really move towards a transformative model mm -hmm. rather than stay stuck in one of those um, additive models where the curriculum stays in place and we just kind of add, sprinkle in a few people of mm -hmm. color here and there. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we want because that just further tokenizes, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I do think you need to have enough voices of people of color to show the rich diversity within any community. Mm -hmm. I've had this problem. I teach a social studies and drama, and I've had this problem, two different kind of related problems this year, one with our AP U.S. History textbook, which the first edition came out in 1956, and it's been updated, I think, 13 times since 1956, and that's not been enough times. Like, it should have been updated more. Um, and it's not 
accessible to our students. And so that's been a kind of battle I've been fighting. How do I teach that class with the text I've been given? Because it's the text that the school district has said, you teach this class with this text, right? And then with drama, I teach drama and it's an elective and I get to kind of do what I want with it. There's not a lot of direction, kind of top-down direction about how it should be taught. And I looked at my school year and I thought I should teach Shakespeare. And that was really... That at the time, I kind of just took it for granted. Just that's just what you do. You teach Shakespeare when you teach drama. But it's been uh, a really interesting journey, kind of figuring out um, even doing that unit, like that it's not that it's t- kind of there's so many problematic things about Shakespeare. And I think that's one of the reasons that Hope and I were wanted to bring up that example is that I had to look at it and think about it critically because I wanted to include. Shakespeare and say this has been the influence of Shakespeare on like the English language, for example, but but also talking about like hip hop Shakespeare out of the UK with like Akala and um, Black Shakespeare Company in San Francisco and um, African American Shakespeare and just the fact that like there are folks who are doing good work to um, kind of challenge Shakespeare. Um, and I so I, I I I'm glad that you said that it's. It kind of depends on your context and it depends on the situation. It depends on the text because I, I don't, I don't know where I, I'm going to fall on that eventually. Like it may not, I may not teach Shakespeare in the future, but I, you know, I'm, it's just, I guess an interesting thing to think about that it kind of falls on some sort of spectrum that you don't throw things away wholesale, right? Just because they're problematic unless they're too problematic and there's not, they're not redeemable. But that's just, I, I just, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that, you know, there are some places where there are five years of Shakespeare. People start in middle school and keep it uh-huh. going. Every year yeah. there's a Shakespeare. Yeah. I, think and that, I, I think that might be too much Shakespeare. <laughs> I went along with it for the longest time until finally I realized, like, help me understand. You won't teach Malcolm X at mm-hmm. all, but you'll do mm-hmm. five years of Shakespeare. That's that's a problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Do you feel like your role as a teacher librarian has um, shifted how you have conversations with folks? Um, And then, Tricia, like as a classroom teacher, do you feel like you have different kinds of access points? I'm curious how you both bring that into the work. Well, I'd say that my work right now is really about trying to support librarianship and becoming Mm -hmm. more culturally responsive because as white as language arts teaching is, librarianship in my limited experience, because I've only been a librarian for two years, I wanna be really clear about that. Um, Librarianship is even more white. So you go to these librarian conferences and Mm. it's just a sea of white women. And I overheard two folks arguing about John Lewis's march and Mm. saying that they heard that it had some language. This was all, you know, the, the euphemisms that we use. I heard, that it had some language. I don't know if it's appropriate for my collection, which really means I'm going to censor John Lewis (laughs) and not allow his book into my library so kids don't have access to it. Folks are making those choices all the time. Mm -hmm. So I see a lot of my work to be um, building that bridge between language arts and librarianship and helping folks connect and then helping that, that disruption happen with respect to building library collections, understanding the difference between censorship and, um, you know, there's something that we call selection, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're not supposed to censor, but you are supposed to select with the population that you're going to be serving. 
books for your collection that will be circulated, that mm-hmm. folks will want to read, of course. So the difference between censorship and selection is very, um, is key. And then just supporting all of the many brilliant, phenomenally talented authors of color that right. are emerging and some right. that have been around for a very long time. Um, Renee Watson needs to get her flowers because she's phenomenal and she's been around for a long time. And I can name drop several others and we might have time for that at the end. But there's so many authors that are pr- producing work that should be in every classroom library mm-hmm. and in classroom and in central library collections. And as libraries, and especially in secondary schools, are being closed, mm-hmm. some of my work as well is to support that work of making sure that libraries don't get closed and that mm-hmm. teacher librarians yeah. are fully staffed and in every building. That's work that we all need to fight for because it is a problem um, for folks to close a central library and, for example, a district like Philadelphia Public Schools to only have, I believe, they only have three secondary librarians in all of Philadelphia Public Schools. Shame. Three? So. Mm. Oh, we three. have a shame bell for that. I don't know where it is. Hold on. Hold we on. We usually have a shame bell shame that we bell. ring for extra horrible things. I'm sorry. How many she's, librarians? She's lost it. My understanding is they only have three secondary school librarians in all of Philadelphia Public Schools. And I hope if I'm wrong. <laughs> for shame. Yes. That's absurd. I hope if I'm wrong, someone will come on and say something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Trisha. Yeah, Trisha, yeah. do you want to share a little bit about your expertise or like what do you what do you think being a classroom teacher um, does or influences in terms of like shaping the conversations you have? Um, I think that my work as a classroom teacher um, and, this, and I'm also um, department chair at my school, too. I think that which has its, I guess, um, positives and benefits, um, as with all things. Um, I think that being sort of in the classroom helps me to appreciate the nuances of what teachers are experiencing when they try to teach in a culturally responsive and um, responsible way. Um, I teach in a majority, uh, predominantly white community. It's about 70% white. Um, It's fairly well-resourced, and so... Um, I'm only one of, actually, we have more pieces of color in our building than probably many neighboring schools. So we have, wow. I think, about, hmm. I, I want to say we have one per department. Um, and I think that my work as a classroom teacher um, has been helpful in speaking to others outside um, my building in the Disrupt Text sort of collective in that I can say like, well, this is what I did in the classroom yesterday. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm planning to do tomorrow. Yeah. Um, this is how my colleagues and I um, kind of unpacked and tried to think about how we might teach a text like Octavia Butler's Kindred, which we are mm-hmm. teaching right now, um, to a classroom full of majority white students. And how do we help students unpack that text and unpack their understanding of slavery and see and not make it all about the oppression, right? And make it about um, black resilience and resistance and joy. And how do we build text sets around that um, book? And how do we think of it in a tradition of Afrofuturism? Like how do we do all those things? That's good, yeah. Yeah, how do we do all those things and do it in a way that meets our students where they are because students, you know, we don't teach history very well here in, in like, I mean, I think it's 
it's clear. <laughs> and there was a report by Southern Poverty Law Center that talked specifically about American slavery and how, mm-hmm. you know, most U.S. school children are not learning basic facts and important facts. And we know about the movement to sort of um, write the narrative of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's a it's a delicate um, sort of um, I don't I don't want to say balance because that makes it sound like I hate the two sides kind of thing, but yeah. it is a it is a walk that I have to walk and I think about. It keeps me up at night thinking about how am I mm. teaching this text with these kids? And we actually did this great activity where the teachers and I, we had a conversation about the book and we kind of laid out our best and worst case scenarios for teaching this book. Mm. And we laid out like best case scenario after we are finished, what will students have learned? What will be their takeaways? And then we did a worst case scenario and we sort of built from there and thought about what things we could do, what experiences and opportunities for reading and writing we could um, have for students so that we could make our best case scenarios come true and um, I guess minimize the worst case scenarios, knowing Mm -hmm. that not everything is ever in our control. I absolutely love that framing, and I want to ask my teaching partner tomorrow (laughs) about it as we plan our our next unit. Um, We are getting signaled to take a quick break, so we will pause for a second, and then when we come back, we have some questions from the Twitterverse. Hi, Hope. Hi, Annie. You know how all these giant global companies are basically lawless now and are trying to overpower our democracy to protect their profit margins? Yes. And how it's basically impossible to opt out of the late capitalist system we've created? Sis, you don't have to tell me. Well, listen, I found a first step. TAPCO Credit Union, Pierce County's original credit union. Really? Tell me more. Well, credit union means they're not-for-profit financial cooperative, and they exist to enrich their members, not some big bank shareholders somewhere out of state. And they are Pierce County's credit union, dedicated to serving the local community, just like Channel 253. Ooh, that's pretty interesting. Well, what about their services? I mean, I can't live without mobile banking. Am I right? Right, right. So now you don't have to choose between important services and your ethics because TAPCO offers mobile banking, access to a nationwide ATM network, plus lower fees and better rates than a lot of the big guys. Ooh, I've got to say, I'm pretty impressed with that. TAPCO's a local choice. To learn more about keeping your money local, visit tapcocu.org. Thank you, TAPCO, for your support of this podcast and Channel 253. Well, as we come back, um, I want to ask a few questions from the Twitterverse. And so one in particular, um, shout out to listener Kevin Day. Um, He asked, if we imagine a school schedule that allowed for collaborative time between social studies and history teachers um, and English teachers, first of all, yes, humanities model. I just want to say that's beautiful. And some schools are doing that. That's true. Um, What might a teacher from the social studies or history angle do to help even more with this idea? of disrupt text and he just says disrupt text goodness what do you think about collaboration um i think one thing that history teachers could do is teach some of that um counter narrative history Mm. um so that when i'm in english class and i bring up um an idea or a concept regarding like systemic oppression throughout history that i that students aren't surprised or that students (laughs) question or you know like i think that they're I think one of the tensions that I face sometimes um, and that teachers have told me, language arts teachers have told me, is that they sometimes feel ill-equipped to mm. teach the history of everything, right? Mm. So, like, I'm going to teach this book, but now I have to teach all the history that goes with it. Or if it's a book about another culture or another place, now I have to know all these things. And 
then I might hear, well, I'm not a history teacher, right? And I think that's one issue we can put aside. But I think mm-hmm. the other issue there is I think that if we could if we could work in collaboration with social studies teachers, if social studies teachers were teaching from, you know, the Zen project, or were teaching from rethinking schools, I mean, if they were taking mm-hmm. that approach and making sure to surface counter narratives to teach kids about counter narratives, then I think that when we get to a text, um, like in AP Lang, one of the central texts is, you know, a letter from Birmingham jail. Mm-hmm. So then when we get to that text and he's talking about the white moderate that he's very upset with, you know, Dr. King. And then I start showing kids, well, you know, like if we take a look at the actual polling data from the 1960s, you can see how he was wildly unpopular. In fact, he has lower polling numbers than our current president does now. They're shocked by that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's important for history teachers to show those counter narratives. Mm. so when I ask a question, and during the break, I know we talked, you mentioned 1984. Um, I'm teaching that right now. It's part of my curriculum. But if I teach that book in a way that asks us to think about systems of oppression, mm-hmm. then I need kids to also think about, well, in reality and historically, who have been the groups that have been targeted by systems of oppression? Because mm-hmm. oppression doesn't target groups equitably, right? Yeah. And yeah. so- kids need that sort of like background knowledge in order to um, really sort of do that work. Um, And it takes, it takes, it really does take a village. It takes um, multiple ways into it because some kids who may not see themselves as quote unquote English students. Right. Right. But they see themselves as history buffs, but what history are they learning? Right. I have a really interesting um, example of how that worked really well in our English department at our school is amazing. And I, um, this is actually my drama class. I had a student, we were talking about um, redlining because we're going to read A Raisin in the Sun in drama class. And one of my seniors, who's just just brilliant, shows up about half the time, but when he's there, he's incredible. But he, um, that, that is shade. You should come to my class. Don't be, don't, don't miss my class. Like it's way fun. You should totally be there. Well, one day he was actually, he was there and he is so insightful and he said, you know, this is kind of like we're talking about redlining, and he said this is this is all. Um, we read um, Langston Hughes Harlem, and he said this is just like what Dr. King was saying about if you let potential dry up and die, like that's what he the white moderates were saying to him. That's what other preachers were saying to him. You need to you need to like calm down. You need to like temper your rage. Like you need to like that kind of boils in you. Um, you can't you can't shake shit up. Like that's not allowed. Um, and just having students make connections between between housing discrimination and between letters in Birmingham jail and between and to like um, our community in Tacoma and neighborhoods that have been redlined and like this really rich conversation about about kind of historical systems of oppression that that never would have happened if our English department hadn't been working on these things for months and like doing a lot of heavy lifting in terms of giving kids the resources right so when it works it works like it it's really phenomenal so if anyone is feeling like listening to this and feeling like well i don't know if i could do that you certainly can because it's happening in some places and it's happens it's pretty incredible and kids are are when they come into class they are ready to have conversations about difficult topics so it's possible don't shy away and some of these topics you know it is about semantics right when we say Mm -hmm. that we're going to teach hard history, or we say that we're going to teach difficult topics, it's harder for some of us than it yeah. is for others, Yeah. right? And it's hard in different yeah. ways. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm a firm believer in supporting students in, you know, you mentioned um, Harlem. And for me, as a reader who is a person of color, I immediately felt like that was encouraging me to address whatever rage I might be feeling as a result of coming from a group that has been marginalized, oppressed, silenced, etc. So I think that one thing social studies teachers and language arts teachers can do is encourage students to confront whatever feelings of guilt, shame, rage, whatever they feel when they're dealing with counter narratives from history or Mm. dealing with a complicated legacy of colonization. Mm. And you know, when we think about the books that have been published historically and those that are in libraries and in classrooms, certain folks were given an advantage mm-hmm. over others when it came right. to simply to being published. So yeah. that, of course, is going to flood what is in our schools and in our libraries and in our collective consciousness with certain stories over others. And, mm-hmm. you know, Trisha mentioned Um, Stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi over the break. And that is a wonderful book that folks should definitely use in language arts and social studies classrooms. We've also got the Black and Latinx history of the United States. And then we've also got the um, indigenous, Mm -hmm. well, the YA version of the indigenous history of the United States. And I might have butchered that title. Um, Indigenous people's history. Trisha, help me. Yes. Indigenous people's history. Yeah. Okay. Indigenous people's history. Mm -hmm. So we've got these, these resources. So folks don't need to feel like Mm -hmm. they don't have the resources. It's just about having the courage to say, okay, when we read this Mm -hmm. and we encounter these feelings, what are we going to do with it? And how are we going to change the future? So we're forward facing rather than continually, you know, I don't think we deal, like Trisha said, I don't think we deal with the past or history in very healthy ways at Mm -hmm. all. Um, there's a wonderful documentary called Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore that looks at Mm. the Holocaust and the way that Germany handled that history. And it's very different from the way that we have handled our history here. So I would encourage people to watch that documentary as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm in the middle of teaching um, Born a Crime for the first time and have trying to um, facilitate Mm -hmm. space to have those conversations with kids and ask questions to help them make those connections. Um, And then just, I mean, you know, in that book, he really frames it, the apartheid in like juxtaposition to the U.S. And so we talk, we've been talking a lot about that, but a lot of my kids are third culture kids. And so for them, they may or may not be, um, have U.S. passports, but have not really lived in the U.S. And so that's also been really interesting conversations um, Mm. around that same thing. I have one more question for you from Twitter. It's a little bit not related to what we're talking about, but I do want to ask it. Um, And it's really, well, I guess it kind of is. So institutional um, racism that happens within, you know, the the classroom and within education structures. And so she asked a question about teachers pay teachers. I don't know if either of you saw that online, but kind of just this notion that teacher pay teacher um, is filled with a lot of white women who then reflect some of the things that are happening in in our schools. Mm. Um, And that just reinforces just this... um, uh, colonial narrative or the canon and so on. Do either of you have a take on? Oh, look at the cat in the background. Do either of you? <laughs> there's a cat in the back. Um, do either of you have animals. a take? It's so cute. <laughs> do either of you have a take on teachers pay teachers or just that as a, a tool or structured? Or do you have a recommendation for if people want um, access to or or want to support um, curriculum that is like challenging the status quo? They should go to instead of teachers pay teachers. Um, I have um, 
I have not seen material on Teachers for Teachers. Like 99% of that material is not good. <laughs> um, and they're charging like $10. I'm like, what are you yeah. charging I for this? I think that, um, but I, at the same time, at the same time, I also want to say that the fact that Teachers Pay Teachers exists is an indictment of the system. Yeah. Because yep. teachers need resources. Yeah. Teachers yeah. need quality professional development and they are not getting it. They are not getting the time. Right. I do. I can't. It's hard for me to judge teachers who have to have a lesson plan for this new thing they're teaching and they yeah. don't have any prep time. And here's a worksheet and it costs a dollar. Yeah. Like yeah. I can't. It's hard for me to judge teachers. But at the same time, at the same time. <laughs> Know that you're contributing then to a system that is going to perpetuate stereotypes that is going to, and actually, the more you go to that, the more your district doesn't actually feel that needs to give you any professional development too. That's the other thing. Yep. So you're just making yeah, the system yeah. going in the short term and in the long term. Um, I think that what I would say is I would go to resources written by people of color first, mm-hmm. I would pay people of color what they deserve. Um, I would look for those voices. There are many professional texts written by um, education publishers and also outside of education publishers that can be very helpful. Um, One text that I really want to recommend is Tiffany Jewell's, um, this book is Mm anti-racist, which is excellent. And it's a book that I think you can use with kids and with adults. Um, So I would use, I would use something like that. Um, Yeah, I just, I think the teachers pay teachers world I think Dr. Debbie Reese did a Twitter thread about, mm. I think around Thanksgiving, she did a Twitter thread about some of the resources that she found on there. And if you just want to see how problematic Teachers Pay Teachers is, you just search Thanksgiving or Native yeah. Americans yeah. on there and you will see stereotype after stereotype after stereotype with cute fonts. And, and those big like, bobblehead like characters yes, that have with too. the feathered headdresses and the like big googly eyes and it's like um I mean Shambel. That's cute Shambel. Wait, yeah, where's the shambell? <laughs> uh cute just making making racism cutesy. It's, oh, it's yes. if it's cute, it's fine, right? Yeah. Well, at the what end of the day, you? you're either gonna be somebody who challenged the status quo, yeah. who was willing to dig in and recognize that there are problems in the way that we educate children and then in the materials that we use in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And you're critically evaluating. One of the things that I love about Trisha's work is this piece of critically developing a critical consciousness and critically Mm -hmm. evaluating what we bring into the classroom. And Mm -hmm. so follow Trisha. I think she's really strong in that. And there are lots of folks out there who are doing the work that is beyond, you know, the version 1.0. And though the teacher shortage is real, recognize that, acknowledge that, it is time for us to step up and step into the power Mm. that Mm. comes from learning to critically analyze not only what the materials that we bring, but how we teach them. And so teachers pay teachers. Yes, it's an easy solution. And like Trisha said, I can't fault anyone who has, they they always say that new teachers feel like they're drinking from a fire hose, right? Because we give them so much and expect so much of them. And we have even had people come to us and say, yes, well, you're talking a lot about these philosophical implications, but how do I do this work? Mm -hmm. They want us to give them concrete steps to follow. And we are working on materials. Um, I won't say a whole lot right now, but we have some exciting things coming in the near future that will empower folks to be able to do this work. Um, 
but it is going to be about the story of people's involvement. You know, how involved were you? Did you Mm. come in, follow the status quo, do your job? Or did you decide, okay, some of what I'm doing is actually harmful. Some of what the way that I'm doing it is actually harmful. I am not Mm -hmm. okay with that. I'm going Mm -hmm. to course correct. That's the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to jump in and just say, like, I'm not special. Like, I think that I had a teacher say to me once, like, well, you know, we're not all teachers are like you and we can't do all the things that you do. And I'm like, well, first of all, I'd like to say that about 99% of the work that I've done has been like free because there's this thing called the internet. Yeah. And it's incredible. I think it comes- <laughs> you should check it out. <laughs> yeah. You should check out Google. It's this really great company, I suppose. I don't know. They have problems. I don't want to say that. <laughs> um, but um, I do think that there's this sort of idea that you have to like, I don't know, like that there's like exceptionalism, right? That's always used mm. against people of color, right? Yeah. Um, and I just think that anyone can do this work if you just have the will. Like, I think it comes down to like four things, right? And Dr. Um, Elena Aguilar talks about this. And so does Glenn Singleton from Courageous Conversations. Mm-hmm. Do you have the knowledge, skill, will, and capacity. And you have to think about like, where are you lacking? Is it your knowledge? Probably. Skill, of course, will, and capacity. And the will part is a thing that I think is actually gets teachers. You will never have the knowledge or skill or capacity if you don't have the will. You have to be willing to take the time. I I mean, I spend a lot of hours on myself thinking about all Mm. the decolonization that I've had to do. And yes, that's an investment of my time. So it does cost me that. But I also see that as my role as an educator because I'm working yeah. with young people. And my job doesn't end when I quote unquote clock out, right? Yeah. So I, I do think that it is really critical that even if you've been teaching for a long time and you think I've been doing the work, like I just, you just have to go back and really evaluate and it, go, it all comes down to, you know, Dr. Maya Angelou, um, you know, do the best as you can um, until you know better. And then when you know better, you do mm-hmm. better. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's actually a perfect place um, to end our conversation. Um, we do have a quick kind of um, a quick segment that we want to do real fast with you all. Um, and essentially it's our champagne and real pain segment. Champagne for my real friends, real pain for my champ friends. We raise a glass um, to figurative glass, unfortunately. Um, we raise a glass of champagne to somebody who's doing awesome things or good work, something related to our topic. And we are wondering if either of you or both of you have a uh, want to raise a glass to a current favorite writer, someone that you think is doing amazing work, um, and you want to just raise that glass to them. Who would you raise it to? I'll jump in. I don't have a writer, but I have someone who's doing amazing work in this field. Is that all right? Okay. Yes, please. I don't want to say I don't have a writer because she also writes, but I don't know that that's what she's known for per se yet. Okay. <laughs> um, but I want to shout out Val Brown. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Who is the um, leader and founder of the clear the air movement collective mm. organization. Um, because the work that she does to help educators across all disciplines to unpack mm. their own internalized racism, their own, um, lack of knowledge in terms of how we understand this country. I know that I would not be the educator I am without her and without every book she recommends. I don't, it's hard to have time to read, but I read all the books she recommends because it has been 
it's just so invaluable to my learning as a person. Mm -hmm. So I want to shout out Val because she does incredible work um, that she doesn't have to do. This is like outside yeah. of her day job. Yeah. I love you, Val. Awesome. <laughs> I loves, love you too, deserves Val. Deserves all the champagne. Yeah. <laughs> Val is, she is an angel. I mean, she's feisty and tough and powerful and and so many things, but yeah. she has blessed my life as well. Just knowing her and being able to learn from her has been, just like Trisha said, transformative. So if you don't know about Clear the Air, the hashtag, the website, mm. the movement, you need to get with it. So I will definitely second Trisha on that one. And then as far as a writer that I would say, um, I would say that I really appreciate, I, I'm going to say Renee Watson. Mm. I'm going to say that she wrote a short story in um, the compilation Black Enough that was about black girls who camp. And it was so amazing. That's and awesome. I can't believe, I don't mind telling folks that I'm older than 35 years old. I won't say how much older, but I am older than 35. <laughs> and it took me this long. I was this many years old before I read a story about camping. And I have camped and been outside and loved the outdoors my whole life. And I know there's this, you know, a lot of jokes about black people don't camp. Well, actually, there are quite a few who do. And the outdoors is for people of color, too. So, um, in fact, Native people were enjoying the outdoors of North America long before other folks. So, you know, I'm just going to say that I, I appreciate what she's doing with her work to consistently and over a long period of time um, disrupt the way that folks see Black mm. women and young black women and the experience of blackness, given that she comes from the West, just like I do. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Um, we also dish out a little real pain. Annie, did you have champagne? Sorry, I cut you off. Back no, there. I have a real pain, though. OK, uh, so real pain <laughs> is basically the opposite. Uh, somebody that mm -mm. we got go a, a shout out and a call out. So the um, call out that. Yeah. Go for for being awful. Um, my, What's your real pain? Well, during the break, we were talking about... So the New York Times came out with the 1619 Project, which is incredible. And then recently, this group, I think they're the National Association of Scholars, don't click on their website because you'll probably get on some list somewhere. But they came out with this 1620 Project, which is in response to the 1619 Project. And if you're unfamiliar with the 1619 Project, essentially... It's examining the history of slavery and its legacy in America um, and really pretty incredible reporting and work done by the New York Times on that project. Um, and the, the 1620 project, this is from their, their blurb on Google, like I said, I'm not clicking, um, is a rich collection of scholarly voices gathered to refute the New York Times 1619 project and provide broader pictures of American history. And I really appreciated something that Trisha said, which is that um, that's like white rage encapsulated and I think that probably these folks should just get lost they should like take a like take a long walk on a short pier because um, they're I, they're trash so that's my real pain today <laughs> do, do either of you have real pain that you would like to dish out or feel comfortable doing that sometimes our guests aren't really I will so just okay. I will say Annie that I appreciate the um, the call out and I'm here for the white person calling out other person um, call out culture. So please do that. I'll just say that. 
Can I just talk trash for one second about Ruby Payne? Yes, because this morning we were <laughs> in my now? in my PLT. We are we're reading um, culturally responsive teaching and the brain, and there's a section on there, and I was just remind was, she was disrupting um, Ruby Payne's work and just kind of countering it with this is actually some elements about poverty that we you know rethinking our approach to poverty. Oh, oh you mean like Ruby Payne? The idea that you can, if you have enough grit, you could be not have a um, a poverty of the mind. <laughs> So I, I, yeah, anyway, I was just reminded about how often that book was used or still is used in districts across America yeah. um, and how much nonsense and harm it's actually doing to people. Uh, Trisha, any, any real pain? Um, there's so many. What day is it? <laughs> um, but yeah, go I, for it. Give us a list. Give us a list. Um, well, <laughs> We're here. I We're think ready. in the publishing industry, I think that we can just take a look at those um, diverse covers that Barnes and Noble decided that they were to release. Took what's incredible about that story is that they your tweet on that. I was what is in, what's incredible about it is that it's not on the Onion. Is what's they incredible really about it? They really thought that they would just take canonical books that feature no people of color. And then just put a cover on it with people of color. And actually not just a cover, five different covers for each book. Listen, so the Frankenstein like, one, the Frankenstein one took me out. <laughs> Did you see that? Mm-mm. What's that? Trisha, oh the Frankenstein gosh. one. Oh my gosh. I and and just the problematic idea. I mean, they did they did a Wizard of Oz. Didn't they do a Wizard of Oz one with a native person? Yes. Yes! I cannot understand. Ring that shame bell, Annie. <laughs> Sorry, I was so shocked I forgot about it. That's keep going, keep going. That is awful. I cannot understand the who, like, they thought that that was going to be a good idea. And I, I think that just speaks to, like, the um, way in which many of these um, established organizations and institutions approach, quote, unquote, diversity. We'll do right. the shallow thing that looks mm. good and not really change anything on the inside, right? On mm. the outside, I'll wear my nice shirt, but on the inside, mm. I'm still maintaining white supremacy, right? So that is just what it looks like. And I just can't believe that they thought that that was a good idea. It is just you know, remarkable. You know, someone got a raise for that, probably. They were like, oh, that's, ah, a, that's a great <laughs> idea. You get a, so you, get a <laughs> you get a raise in the marketing department. The optics yeah, of inclusion is very popular. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yes, that's a good one, Trisha. Good oh, one. God. I, mean, I feel like that's a good title of an article, The Optics of Inclusion. You can't make, you can't make it up, right? I mean, that's true. You cannot. Yeah. You cannot. All right, nope. Annie, time for our final segment. We got to let these ladies go, but will you lead us into it? I will. It's time to do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies! So it is our final segment where, as teachers, we love to assign homework, but only meaningful work. Um, and so my assignment for our listeners today is please go check out Disrupt Text online. We'll link to the website. Um, go read some of the articles. And I would like to challenge listeners to think about one thing that you can put in action from a recommendation, from their conversation um, listed online. Um, something that you can do, like do it in your current unit this week or worst case, do it in your next unit. But make a plan, be intentional and try to do some disruption in your classrooms. All right. My homework today is to check out the past hashtag disrupt text Twitter chats to see how educators are engaging with this awesome organization and the work that they're doing. Uh, it's a there's a lot of rich content in those 
chats. Um, just make sure you go past the original p- question post and you can see how people have interacted with each other and responded. Um, really awesome conversations happening online. And Twitter sometimes is like a toxic place and not everybody likes it. But this is one case where it is absolutely not. And it's amazing. And you've got to go. So put aside your fear of Twitter and, and trolls and stuff and go check it out because it's completely <laughs> and absolutely worth it. All right. Homework from either of you. I'm going to give two assignments and yeah. one, it, it might sound, you know, like it's, it's a little bit too far, but I just, I have my best friend, she is not in education at all. And she wore a disrupt text t-shirt out in the world and people were engaging in conversation with her about the work of disrupt text just because mm. she was wearing the t-shirt. So I encourage you to either where have the courage to wear one at school, start some conversations, give one to a friend so that they can wear them and have the conversations because the quotes that we have on them are really great conversation starters. So that's part A of the homework. And then part B is to read some of that quote unquote hard history or mm-hmm. some of the, um, the, some people call it revisionist history, but I like I like the idea of um, what Trisha said about counter narratives because they are countering the narratives that we have Mm. learned are the principal or main primary narratives. So stamped by Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi, please read indigenous people's history of the United States of America. Please read um, lifting as we climb black women's battle for the ballot box by Yvette Dion. And there are others out there. So seek them out, find them, read them, become informed. Awesome. Thank you. And and I'm going to quote my dear friend, Ariel Johnson, who is a second grade teacher in San Jose. You can follow her on Twitter as well, Ariel Johnson. (laughs) And yesterday we were at this conference and she said, they asked him a similar question. What should people do on Monday? And she said, I don't want to talk to you about what you need to do on Monday if you aren't working on yourself first, because then you're going to do it wrong. So what I'd like to suggest then is to read all the things that Julia said. Um, I'm going to add the Racial Healing Handbook by Dr. Annalise Singh. Um, It's an actual handbook, workbook, for people to unpack their racial identity, their racialized experiences, to think back about the dominant narratives or history they've learned. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is something that I would encourage you to do, get a co-conspirator with you and um, do that work. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you both taking your time out of your Sunday to have this conversation with us. And we look forward to um, being part of the work, supporting your work, et cetera. Thank you again. Yeah, thank Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. I just ate a lot of um, hot pot just now here in Abu Dhabi. So Are you really I'm full? a little bit out of it. I'm going to blame the MSG and the sodium. Mm. It was delicious. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? Interchangeable. White Ladies! And please support Channel 253 with a monthly or annual membership at channel253.com. This is Channel 253.